I do think today it's so overwhelming, especially with Instagram, when you see all these people who've got hundreds of thousands of followers. It's like, how am I ever going to be like that? But funnily enough, I've never been mad about pushing for for massive um, following with my social media. I like to be honest about it. And I've got, I've there's other designers who um, are in my would be seen as competitors basically and you know I've got 20,000 followers and they've got like 180,000 followers and they've been in business half the time I have but it's actually benefited me people like your niche you're less they want they want to be working with someone who is smaller and less mass and while we're getting all this Zara and everything's seen as mass there's a real for those who really want something unique and special they're actually really like the lower numbers Hi, I'm Dan Brophy, and this is Quit Your Day Job, a podcast for frustrated creatives. How do you turn what you love into what you do? Each week, I chat to a different creative about how they found a way to monetize their passions. Here at Quit Your Day Job, we believe that the pursuit of what you love is just a process, and one that is available to anyone. So what are you waiting for? The journey to becoming more connected to who you are and what you do starts now. Gwendolyn Birkin is part of an exciting generation. Gwendolyn Birkin is part of an exciting generation of Australian fashion designer that came up in the late 90s independent fashion boom, alongside such alumni as Akira Isagawa and Lisa Gorman. But since then, a lot has changed in the Australian fashion industry. Many of the names that defined that period, how we dressed and what our high streets looked like, and the way Australian style was defined in the eyes of the world, have since disappeared due to influences like highly competitive offshore production and the inevitable defeat of online shopping by fast fashion and overseas mega-brands. For Gwendolyn Birkin to still be in business 21 years later is no small miracle, due mainly to a series of creative business reinventions. I wanted to talk to Gwendolyn about what it was like coming up in an era of promise, and how she's managed to continuously adapt and evolve within her industry in order to continue to do what she loves. This is a great episode for anyone looking to start their own business, especially one based around an artisanal skill set. To me, one of the most thought-provoking ideas that we touch on is the idea that when you are the machine at the center of your business, how do you ensure that you are taking the best care of your biggest asset? For some creatives, the threat of neglecting their well-being for the sake of heightened productivity may mean that you're getting results at the cost of your health and this is unsustainable. You need to ensure that you are supporting your passion, not just creatively or financially, but physically, mentally, nutritionally, and with rest. So it's up to you to take care of your greatest asset. Before we get down to business, can I ask if you enjoy this podcast, could you do what you can to spread the love? You could screen capture it while listening to the podcast and post it to your Instagram stories tagging me at Dan Brophy. You could write a review and rate us on iTunes, or you could send it in a text message to someone who might find it inspiring. 
Let's do what we can to spread information just like this so that more and more creatives can find a way to turn what they love into what they do. Now, without further ado, please enjoy my chat with Gwendolyn Birkin, Australian fashion designer from the fashion house, Gwendolyn. Well, I like to start by asking people, so when someone says, what do you do? What do you tell them? I tell people that I make clothing. I think I don't like to be, I don't like to be put in the fashion genre and I don't really like to be put in the bridal genre. Um, I do actually, actually, I also say that I'm a designer because I look at creativity through my business on so many different levels. Like when I do shows, I will um, talk to musicians. I will think about the, the entire look of each photo, like the setting uh, for where, where the model's going to stop. And you might have that framed with a beautiful gold gilt mirror, for example. So I think about more than just clothes. I'm excited to speak to you for a number of reasons, but in particular because you are indicative of a a generation of Australian and in particular Melbourne-based fashion designer that is, it was a very fervent time for Australian fashion as far as I can remember. Just to give some background, when did you emerge into the fashion world? What time was it and, and was it doing something similar to what you're doing now? I emerged in the fashion world quite young um, and I don't think we've got time to talk about all of that but I guess when I emerged into the fashion world with my own voice that would be 1997. Uh, previous to that I worked for other companies um, and from the age of 14 I've been so that would have been whole whole let me think in the mid 80s I, I had jobs that were relevant to where I am at now uh, but and what made 97 the launch? Was it your own label? Yeah, 97, I had just returned from London. I had worked for some top designers in London and I kind of reached the pinnacle, like they were the people I wanted to work with. And I was still like, oh, I'm not really being creative. And people just always kept on grabbing my clothes and grabbing my trinkets and going, what's that? And wanting to borrow things that I was wearing and making myself. And I was working as a pattern maker a lot of the time for other companies. So I knew that I had had something. Uh, Who did you work for in London? In London, I worked for Catherine Hamnett. And uh, I also worked for a high street brand called Diva. And we used to develop for Miss Selfridges and Oasis and Warehouse. And I also did some um, costumes, it's not widely known, for a drag comedian. Um, I wasn't like the face of that. I did. Uh, there was a friend of mine who was the main costume person. But is it Lily Savage? Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it's Lily Savage. It's a while ago. I can't quite remember. I rem- I hadn't made many um, drag costumes in my. Oh no, actually, I had made a lot of drag costumes, but I never actually got to meet Lily. And I remember my friend um, said that they had a massive fit because I made the slit too long, <laughs> and his penis was hanging out. <laughs> And he threw the dress across the floor in a big half. So I, I don't know, my career as a, um, a drag couturier <laughs> went down the toilet then. Uh, but 97, I came back from England and England was quite depressed. And I could really see that you get stuck in your roles there. I did have a really amazing opportunity to go to Vivian Westwood, but I was also in love 
at the time and wanted to come back to my love who is based in Melbourne. Um, and I came back and... So you had, you had been um, offered a chance, a, a role at Vivian Westwood? No, I hadn't been offered, but there was uh, one of my colleagues, they were looking for a pattern maker and they had been trying to look for a pattern maker for six months. Even when I was at Catherine Hamnet, they'd been trying to hire a pattern maker for six months. So I knew one of the things that really pushed me into um, starting my own business was I was really solid knowing that I had these skills as a pattern maker. And that's how I started my business, freelance pattern making on the side as I built my business. Because I started it from zilch, massive debt from travelling. <laughs> um, the Nice scheme, the good old Nice scheme, Great. which back in the days was really good. Like you got a little grant and you were on the um, dole for a year and just subsidised that first kickstart into your business, which is good. Um, and yeah, when I came back to Australia, I couldn't really find a job I wanted. I didn't really get offered jobs, which was weird after being offered so many jobs in England. And my partner at the time was like, go, why don't you do your own thing? You should just get started you've always wanted to so it was great to have someone behind me encouraging me but probably in terms of the scene at that time uh, other people that I knew like the Vixen girls I'm not sure whether uh, people would have heard of the Vixen but they're amazing um, textile designers they were in the same generation as me at university and I'd bought fabrics off them to make hats that was my first business so many things that I've done. Um, did you study? Where did you study? At RMIT. Okay. Yeah. And what, was that in the early 90s? That was... Hold on, let me think. I think I, I started in 89. Okay. Yeah. I finished school in 88. I can remember that. I can remember my timeline very well. Um, so, yeah, that was really exciting. They were making... The Vixen Girls were making some amazing um, headway with their label and that was really inspirational seeing people from my generation... Um, doing so well it, I, I felt like oh, I can do it too and I really liked their aesthetic as well um, and then because of some of the other things I've done previous and because I had a good reputation as a pattern maker some of my I was doing freelance pattern making for Teresa Liano from TL Wood and she was chatting to me and she said oh I know they're looking for some new designers in the new generation parade and she said, you're not ready to do that yet, are you? But of course, I was like, yep, I'll do that. <laughs> I put together a collection. So it wasn't really like a, um, I wasn't really an established designer at all. Like I just had these samples and I pitched myself as a very high-end couture business, but it didn't, it's too hard to try and start up like that. People, you need to have established name to be able to sell those big ticket things. So I, um, had to kind of fall over and get up again and try and find my way to make a living doing what I was doing through experimenting with lots of different things. Um, there was a lot of independent fashion shops around at that time. Uh, there was Alice Euphemia, which was my first stockist. I literally walked in in my clothes, purposefully, <laughs> and um, started chatting to one of the girls there. And she was like, oh, where are you clothes from? They're really interesting. I'm like, oh, I make it myself. That was how I got my first stockist. And then um, I stocked at Miller down in St Kilda too. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, she was Gosh, amazing. I remember these stores because I, I finished school, high school in 2000. Yeah. So my skipping school to WAG years were spent at Fat 52 and yes. poking around at Miller and, you know, all these stores which 
I mean, when you're an impressionable teenager, the things that are cool are so epic and influential to the way you view what you like the whole, your whole life and how you want to dress and yeah it's really interesting for me to observe because it's 20 years since 1997 or 20, yes. 20, 21 years now the idea of things being so cyclical in two decades it always seems to be the case and i'm just noticing so many of these trends which were really there when i was my most like juicy. Aprons. <laughs> aprons were one of my big things that i did and, was, and um, I'm noticing my niece, who's 18 now, she's, oh, she's like trying to get all my 90s things. She wants to wear them all. She's wanting to wear my wardrobe, which is great. I feel like I've, I've got something. But there's a lot of clothes that I've gotten rid of as well, of course, of my personal clothes, but a lot of my collection I still keep. Um, there was just so many shops around then, and um, it was people really, really receptive to locally made product well i think we were coming off the back of a very independently minded mid-90s period because you know that that sort of came crashing in with grunge and everything that was alternative was generally really great so once people started to go okay well what's alternative but refined or what's alternative yet really smart or what's what's the uh, alternative way to to look polished Yes. Then it made sense that you would go and find something that no one else owned that was really specific that was ideally made locally You've been the fact that you are still in business twenty years later is such a success unto itself because it is so rare. There are so few people from your generation. What are some of the names of of designers that that came up in the late nineties, who are your sort of alumni? From memory, it was people like Alana Hill, and I wouldn't say Alana Hill. Alana Hill was a bit before me, and she also has been backed by corporations yeah. through time. So um, she was definitely. She probably just a little bit before, and I've, I think those designers a little bit before came in with more of a um, volume focus. Mm, like Colette Dinnigan, was she really the same? Yeah, same. She, I, I, I'm, I'm not really familiar with um, Colette's business model. I would probably say Akira was part Akira, of that time. Akira is a girl. Um, but then there was other labels who was, I guess, designers who are still around today. Um, Lisa Gorman mm. as well. Uh, yeah, actually, so they, many have gone that I have to <laughs> think of it. Um, but there's so many great ones, like Tina Borg. Do you remember yeah, her? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, she was amazing. And um, Claude Mouse. Claude Mouse, he was amazing. He was a bit after me. There was um, Fool. Oh, yeah. And Glenn Rollison. And I'm just thinking about the show I was in first. Mm. There was some really, there was a lot of really cool raver stuff, like Dresden Workshop. Yeah, Do you remember that? Yeah, well, yeah. I, I remember one of my go-to places when I wag school was on Chapel Street was Wonky Wear, you know, the, oh, Strange Days. It was The, shop, the store was called Strange Days and the clothing that they sold was called Wonky Wear and it was just the full Melbourne raver experience with oh. fur trims and, you know, oh, tube, so neon tubing. And, like, <laughs> it was all new. All those fabrics then were so new too. It was new technology and really exciting. I remember we used to like run around trying to find glow-in-the-dark things. Because before, before I started my label, I also did a label just for a minute called Queer Gear. Because I was really into the um, gay party scene in the early 90s. It didn't last very long, but I was just always wanting everything to glow in the dark and be shiny and plastic. And so I'm glad I didn't get a reputation for that label. <laughs> I'm quite a diverse designer. Like I, Even though my look is very romantic and... Some people put it in the 1920s looking 
um, styling. But in actual fact, there's a lot of Gothic in there too, and Nouveau and um, Victorian. But um, oh, I love so many different styles of fashion. I love 60s kitsch, 70s, you know, you name it. Um, there's good and bad in all of the 80s. I mean, Terry Mugler from the 80s, oh, what an artist. He's amazing. Um, but going back to to the designers of my my period, there was also Obis. Oh, she was a little bit after me too, and she's still around. Um, and Preston's Lee, who were shoemakers, who I shared studio space with too. Uh, Whenever, when a designer so has managed to last, and we'll talk about the ways in which you know that that twenty year period has has changed in, in terms of the Australian industry and then how you've adapted to that. But when you have noticed other designers from the same generation who are still with us as a business, is it because they've rolled with the punches and adapted and evolved or have they, some of them have been able to do their thing? I mean, what about Akira, for example? Is Akira doing what he's always done and still managing to carve out a space? I think Akira's kept it... My, I think he's kept it very, very niche and small and artisan. I think Australia thinks he's quite huge, but he's actually just a humble, sweet man who's doing beautiful work and quality work in small volume. I don't know the business in and out, but that's what I sense. I, I think um, the PR world tends to like to get people and put them on a pedestal and make them seem huge but a lot of the time they're quite humble and small um others i mean i mean alex from alpha 60 and his sister they are a little bit younger than me in their business and i i i think they're an amazing powerhouse they really came up when through the um period with fat 52 and i just think those two have got some kind of energy superpowers. They just keep opening shops and they opened the first shop on um, Brunswick Street. I think there's just a real true f passion there that has seen them through. But they've diversified, like they really started with t-shirts and jeans. Mm, I think it was mainly t-shirts, but they've changed their range a lot. To be honest, I don't really watch a lot of what other people are people doing. Are doing. Yeah. I tend to, I admire people, like I really admire the Alpha 60 um, kids, shall I call them. I feel almost proud of them seeing what they've built uh, and that they've kept it independent and themselves. Uh, and then I also, I'm really proud of Lisa Gorman for what she's built. She's built a really, she's built a beautiful signature style. I think she's had a bit of a hard place in society because she had to, um, she got certain size and she needed to amalgamate with a big corporation. And I think there's been a bit of friction there. But as a woman in business with kids and understanding when things get so big, you do sometimes need to go into that bigger model to survive. So you can't always be the pure voice that you want to. But it depends on your product. I mean, I'm lucky I've focused on um, a high-end product and it can't be too big and it is sustainable as a small business. Whereas if you're doing t-shirts you have to make volume to do a competitive price do you know what i mean yeah absolutely whereas with what i do um i have the luxury of being able to make one at a time and 
um, put really good value product, um, really good value, what am I saying? No, really beautiful quality fabrics, that's what I'm trying to say, and um, handcrafted elements, which you can't do that in the mass. Mm. So I don't need a big company behind me, even though some days I wouldn't mind it. <laughs> um, more so that I could do amazing campaigns. But, you know, I talk, to, um, I talk to my clients sometimes and go, you know, I can keep this at a competitive price because we haven't spent millions of dollars on big advertising campaigns. Yeah. And, um, you know, sometimes it keeps it humble and real and honest too. So when I think about what the, the Gwendolyn aesthetic is, it's, it's very decorative. There's beading and it's, it's, there's, you can really... I even have memories of the late 90s, early noughties version of your aesthetic, which, I mean, n now you're very much in a bridal space, but I remember even have the memories of the look being very decorative and having some beautifully, ta uh, you know, decorative elements to it that seemed to require a lot of time and attention. Was that always your intention going in, to create something that people could wear in the day-to-day -day that was um, heightened? Well... Not really. I think part of my intention, it was a bit of a survival technique, is like I wanted to be, create beautiful things that um, other people wouldn't actually bother copying because the fabrics would be too expensive. I, and one thing that I realised when I first started my business was um, I could do everything but I couldn't make the fabric. So I would spend a lot of money on beautiful fabrics and I love fabrics. I'm passionate about fabrics and I love embellishment and later on as I um, as I started to make more contacts and I had more finances that's when I started to design my own embellishments so I also the biggest learning curve was when I bought all this fabric and then Alana Hill had bought it as well and she mass-produced in this fabric so my garments that I had made myself um, weren't of that economies of scale basically I couldn't compete with the pricing so I was like I've got to be really careful and I used to scour shops for vintage fabrics too so nobody else would have the same fabrics as me I was always trying to work out like I used to buy fabrics with $300 a meter it's like what can I do with this $300 a meter fabric that was most economical but beautiful at the same time so a lot of it was about being drawn to really beautiful things, but also remaining very unique, but also being sensible about the amount of expensive fabric that I put in that it was viable to sell to. Uh, because I sewed everything myself, and hence I now have a very bad bag, um, I didn't always have to worry about the cost of the manufacture and pattern making too. I think there's something that I relate to with that as having a business where I make I make video content with people and I can be competitive because I know which things I can do myself and I know that if I because I can I do do everything myself that when I need to bring in additional help I can also work with the best person who doesn't necessarily cost an arm and a leg because I know exactly what skill they need and if they can do that I can hire specifically for that skill yeah once you started to expand your business out from being just a single entity into working with a team Yes. Um, how, well, how, when at its largest, how big did your team get and how did you grow that team? Um, oh gosh, hiring my first person was the most stressful thing ever. Um, how, many years, <laughs> how many years in did you start doing that? I was, oh, do you know, 
I had a girl who worked for me, work experience actually for a while, and then she went on. She used to come in from school and help me cut things out, and she's adorable. Uh, but that wasn't really a hire, it was, she was just helping out. But later on I did hire her. Um, but the first person I ever hired was a PA and production person. And um, Did you hire different skills to what you naturally had? That's what I thought I was doing. <laughs> but um, yeah, that first hire is quite, quite insightful. You don't always know what you get what you're getting and just learning how to read CVs and um, what skills people really bring to the table like, in writing and then the actual is very different I think it actually really helps to work with interns before you do a hire that's how I hire all all the time now um, I love and I I love the interns it's so e- enjoyable to um, work with these young enthusiastic people too and you're you're also sharing your craft and you're sharing your skills I find um, through my hiring, years of hiring, sometimes I've got to be careful what I say, but sometimes <laughs> the um, sometimes the older generation are a little bit, they're not as enthusiastic about it anymore and as that passion is gone, especially, especially with credit to them, a lot of them had seen a really amazing time in the 80s. Well, that's such a, such a that's a topic unto itself, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Because all of my mates who've come up through the film industry in that time of promise through the eighties, where they were sort of convinced that they now? would, yeah, yeah. They, I think that there's a real thing I noticed. Any producers or people that I've worked with who are probably I'm thirty five, so I'm like a decade older than me, and maybe to, to between ten and twenty years older than me, remember a time of promise yeah. where they emerged through film school and assumed that they would just have a job waiting for them, and they'd only ever known that time. Of opportunity and then but cut to you know my generation and people younger than me I'm really aware that we've never known any guarantees and we've it's not like we've had anything taken away from us as a matter of fact I've only ever looked at having a career in film that I would create myself because no one owed me anything but anyone who was a bit older than me had almost been told that there'd be something more for them than there was oh yes yeah that was definitely when I went through uni it was it was like that but I didn't live through that 80s like I didn't have my career through that 80s prime time. In fact, the um, recession hit when I got my first job in 91. Well, 90, I'm pretty sure it was 91. Um, and I was just grateful to get a job. And But then there's just, I, in my opinion, you know how people talk about the global financial crisis. For the fashion industry, I swear it happened like in the early 90s. As that's when everything started to go offshore. When I worked for other companies like Sports Girl, um, Bettina Liano, um, even even in the places in England, they were manufacturing in England, and um, the Bettina, Bettina Liano and Sports Girl were manufacturing in Australia. So good. So that was the mass companies now, no way. No. And that was one of the um, decisions for me to move into bridal when I really saw how much of the... Um, ready-to-wear clothing was just all the factories are closing down and all every, all the manufacturers going offshore. Is bridal one of the last examples of the closest thing to a couture space that Australia has? Absolutely. And I think, um, who do we know that has a couture gown? I've, I've, where else would people wear it? Tell me. 
Yeah, what events in life yeah. would ever call for that? I went to the NGV gala opening ball and I wore this mental outfit. <laughs> it was great. Like I had, this, I had these big um, horns in my head and a massive skirt and gloves. And, but people parted as I walked through. This person that I'd known for years um, came up to me and he literally bowed when he hand me, handed me a glass of water. No, no, sorry, champagne. It's the power that wearing amazing clothes has is phenomenal. But at that event, people were wearing jeans jackets and jeans and black suits. And um, I... A lot of Zara. Well, no, <laughs> that was before Zara. It was a while ago. But if you can't wear it to the opening of... The gala opening of NGV, where are people going to dress? Oh, this was when the NGV opened. Yeah. Officially. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, people. It's funny. Some people come into my shop and they say, "Oh, it's not a bridal dress. It's more of an evening dress or a red carpet dress." And I say, "So when were you last on the red carpet?" (laughs) People just don't dress up. No. And so, do they? Are they? Because, I mean, the, the joy of the wedding ceremony is that people do indulge in these in, in a fantasy. Mm. And do you find that when people, when you're working for a bride to come up with her ideal dress, are you having to manage the realisation of a fantasy? Yeah, it would be more, um, it would be more internal struggles, like I'm bloating, I don't like my breasts. I don't like my hip bones. I don't like, you know, those sort of things. The garment, the garment itself isn't that hard. It's the internal battle they're having with their own self-worth standing in front of... Like, a lot of people will never stand in front of people. The idea of them standing in front of a whole lot of people dressed up freaks them out. Uh, it's... Um, have you taken on the role of a counsellor? Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking after our weekend together how I'm a fashion... Oh, sorry, I'm a, I'm a wedding coach. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Also, just a bit of context. Gwendolyn and I know each other because a few days ago we just did this really amazing personal development workshop with a really great coach who I'd seen uh, a couple of times in the past, Heath Myers. Uh, shout out, Heath. And we both were attracted to working, doing a three-day, very kind of kind of business, kind of per- interpersonal, or kind of personal to do with values and strengths and ideals and really getting a bit focused with your, you know, your chapter ahead and... Pinpoint precision to direction in life. Yeah. Focus. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I mean, that's what I've always... I've, when I've worked with Heath one-on-one in the past, that's what I got. But the problem I had was I would emerge from the tuition after doing one-on-one sessions with him which I did at the beginning of 2016 and then the beginning of 2017, and then have, a, have some goals and have some ideas about which direction I was going, but they, you could forget them really easily. Mm. And I think that I'm hoping that what happens after being in that space for, for three times, eight hours, is enough to at least do the, the slow-baked ideation that then allows you to have some, some more action after that, the, the, the workshop is over. We're sort of darting around all over the place, but that's the way conversation goes. What, what did make you decide that it was a good time to work with a, a, a personal development coach in a workshop space like you, we just did? Several things. Uh, 
I have, like I'm 40, I'm 46. I realized I'm 46. I thought I was 47, but I'm actually 46. How about that? I know. Um, (laughs) Yesterday I went to get some hand therapy because I've been, had a little bit of a setback, but um, yeah, I've had a few health setbacks in the last few years. one health setback on top of the other on top of the other and it has really affected my um, energy levels and my ability to be the amazing dynamic young woman that used to stay up all night sewing things going and going out partying and um, and you know you get a bit older and it's it's harder to keep maintain that kind of energy Um, that the industry has changed a lot too uh, since I have been doing brighter was very very successful when I first moved in moved my ship in that direction how long ago was that about 2004 I just did a slight 97 I started I did the ready to wear day into night um, wholesale and the I was always doing a little bit of bridal on the sly but I didn't have the space and the product to really um, deliver it in a in a good way and then when I opened up my shop um, everyone coming through the door was either a bride, a bridesmaid, going to a wedding, and it was just clear that I needed to to focus on bridal. And I did a little bit of bridesmaids and I did a whole lot of different things, but you just need to stay focused in business. And I couldn't be competitive with the bridesmaids and the mothers of the brides. So the bride, and it was so much more fun having a bigger budget to design something. Oh, so you actually had to be specific, not even just I do bridal in general, but I just do brides versus I do mothers of the bride or I do bridesmaids. You can only do so much, really. And you have to be passionate about what you do. Like for me, I thought maybe later in life I could be mother of the bride because I'll relate to that person. And I think it's important to really understand and relate to the product that you're doing. Otherwise... You, you're not honest about your approach to what you create and and you've got to be passionate about it and you've got to enjoy that part of the process. But since I've been doing the bridal, there's been a lot of online um, com- competition. There's been a whole change. Like Some of the laces coming out of China now are so cheap. I can't believe it. I've gone to... Um, I've gone to big trade fairs and there's there's Chinese laces that are four dollars a meter if you buy one and a half thousand meters of course <laughs> and um, you know the French laces are three hundred dollars a meter wholesale so you've got to and are they you can't compa- compete are, with those big corporations are they comparable like look I can see the difference but a lot of other people can't see the difference so I've been really, really focused on trying to offer something that's different. I have a bit of lace in my offer these days. It's all French lace. And it's all... Because I've been looking at lace since the 80s because my first job was in a fabric store. So um, I've got a really good understanding of what's been out there over the last almost 40 years, hey? God. Wow, 30. Let's say 30. 30. Yeah. Because if you started in the late 90s and that was 20 years ago, you might have had a mid to late 80s awareness of it so yeah so um i try and really choose my laces really carefully in styles that are unique not like floral that's everywhere that looks like it's like the same as the chinese too it's actually really good to have your eye on the cheaper stuff to see what not to do 
It sounds like you've always had to continue in order to be unique in the space. You've had to keep on shifting your focus to do something um, that made you unique or that made yeah. you offer something that no one else could offer. Yes. And what does that look like for you now? What sort of detail or what sort of design are you, are you offering brides that is your answer to to the current climate? Well, what I've one thing that I have done that's that's fresh and new is a plus size range or a cur- let's call it a curve range. And um, there's definitely nobody doing curve bridal in a soft, gentle way. It's all a little bit, um, you know, strap it in and pull it in, whereas my look is very gentle and soft and effortless. And um, I'm also playing with colour. It's not all released yet, but I've got lots of beautiful colours too that are really subtle. It's really hard to do bridal colour. It's still got to have a lightness about it as well as a distinct colour. It can't be a solid solid color that's my sense because i've tried i've been experimenting with color over the years and i've found just been listening to what people want and trying to sculpt the exact right thing because it's very expensive to create these new prototypes too so you want to make sure you get it right when someone comes to you like how would you describe like the Gwendolyn girl, is she, what would define her in your mind? Is she an arty person? Is she an intellectual person? Is she, how would you, who gravitates towards you and says, yes, you're going to give me the dress of my adult fantasies? I don't think the Gwendolyn clientele is just one person. I mean, I have a fantasy of the ideal clientele, but also with wedding designs, you only get one sale in someone's entire life. So you have to be diverse with your approach to business because you're not getting repeat customers all the time. I do find consistently the clients that I see are usually like earthy country people or people who are quite connected to the earth, um, not so princessy. <laughs> um, maybe, you know, it's still gentle and ethereal and but not... not um, that kind of Kim Kardashian thing, um, you know, that's a very, and that's a very, very distinctive look for a lot of the bridal world. Yeah, it would be now. Because yeah. Because it's just, it's just, it's a, it, just, it, just, it is a distinctive look for fashion in general. In fact, in my introductory emails, I will say to people, if you're after a sweetheart, mermaid, strapless gown, I'm probably not the designer for you. It's just easier. Um, I think a lot of my clientele are in, um, in the medical industry, marketing, lots of interior designers, architects, um, and illustrators. Um, so probably people yeah. who have an appreciation for a, a creative world. and yeah. Lots of lawyers too. I mean, what I do is... is it's all made in our studio above our shop, so it's straight, it reflects Australian award wages. So, it unfortunately there's a lot of people who do like my stuff. My sorry, stuff's terrible to say. My designs, but I can't deliver it on price, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And I would love to, but I, I just can't. Mm-hmm. So it does um, mean I don't always reach some of the the clients that I would love to. 
But we do a thing, we have a sample cell element as well, and I have another thing that I've adapted to is a, um, I have a Gwendolyn, what I call the Gwendolyn White range, which is designed with a tighter price point in mind to um, easier fits, so it's easier to make. And um, so I've got a, quite a few different tiers. Could someone, if someone were to come to you and say that, that it was a non-bridal affair, like some other sort of major life incident that you'd want to, incident sounds so dramatic, but, but a key life moment that you would want a beautiful dress for and someone came to you that it wasn't a bridal, would you still be able to? Absolutely, yeah. And I have. It's still in the same kind of price as bridal though. Yeah. And a lot of people with those life moments, they don't always give you enough time. But I've had a few amazing commissions and they're usually really fun because um, the ones who give you enough time, you can really have fun with colour. Like I must admit, I'm busting at the seams to do colour after so many years of, <laughs> of beige. And everyone thinks that I must like beige, but no, no, I would like to do some colour. And I love black. Every time we make a new sample, I say to my girls, oh, imagine it in black. <laughs> <laughs> just yeah. do one in black for me, please. And so, well, just to, to go back, I'd love to get a, a, a little overview of, because you, your career has been through so many different areas. What are some of the highlights for you as a, a as a member of the, the the fashion Australian fashion community, what are some of the the career highlights that you have that have sort of really defined the evolution of Gwendolyn in the last twenty years? I think I did a show at the Regent Plaza Ballroom, and um, it was after I was a finalist in the Young Designer Awards, and I didn't make a place, and then. Um, one, someone kicked up a fuss that I should have won. <laughs> and um, then somehow I got this sponsor from, I think Harper's Bazaar made a big fuss about it, and um, Simon Locke, who was the um, founder of Fashion Week up in Sydney, he took me under his wing and he got me a sponsor, which was a Tori Sassy Pearls, and I showed my first collection up in um, Sydney. So that was, that was phenomenal, that really... Um, took me to the next level. I don't know if I was quite ready for it yet, but I don't know if you're ever ready for these things. Um, and then a continuation um, sponsorship with Atore, which allowed me to do some amazing shows. A lot of the sponsorship deals that used to go on back then, because the economic climate isn't so buoyant, um, it's not happening as much. So that's really hard for the young designers. I feel really blessed that I had those opportunities. Um, and then I was chosen by the Australian government to travel around to New York and London to showcase my collection with other notable Australian designers and that was a real mm. honour um, and also to Singapore too um, what, when, when was that? oh gosh I can't remember I remember the Singapore um, situation clearly I don't think I can talk about it. In <laughs> basically, I done. I did a. Um, I did a show. I did a uh, event in New York as well. This was. I had an agent in New York for a while. Um, America's just so hard to break into. Everyone thinks it's this gold mine, but you've got to be. From what I hear, you've got to be on the ground, and there's a lot of sharks. Um, I had some amazing buyers buy from me, but only when I was there, they didn't buy off my agents. So um, you, you just can't spread, your, you can't spread yourself so thin and be everywhere all the time. So 
focus has definitely been a big thing for me to learn over my career and I was very ambitious young thing um, I suppose also the, the the universe was it was a world of yes there were so many people just telling you yes that you thought well how far can I take this I, yeah, I should be ambitious yeah. because there's no reason not to be yeah I also wonder whether because it was such a fervent kind of you know rich time for interest in fashion and that sort of thing interest in Australia too like yeah. I even when I was in New York they got me to speak at G'day G'day was it G'day G'day Australia G'day I know there's G'day LA it was G'day New York City or something I I was asked to speak in New York oh my god yeah to represent Australia I was like wow this is amazing um and you know I think but I don't know some and there was another, this sounds a little bit um, arrogant, but at one point after one of my shows, I got asked to be in Who Weekly's 20 Sexiest People. How about that? That was a while ago. <laughs> so funny. My partner pulls it out the magazine every so often. But that, like, even to this day, I, like, scratch my head. Like, they had, had Brad Pitt and Lenny Kravitz. And it was funny. My mum was on jury duty, and she saw it when she was in jury, jury duty in the Who Weekly. And she goes, "Oh, they had um Paris Hilton in it too," and Uma Thurman. Mm, I don't mind being on this with her, but um, my mum saw it, and she was she'd gone through it, and she's like, "Gremlin, you're in this this list. There's this guy. He's really really famous." It was some operatic singer. I had no idea who he was. <laughs> she was she had no idea who Paris Hilton nor. Um, I think Shannon Knoll was in the list though too, and that Miranda. Remember Miranda, the transsexual. Oh, do you remember her? Yeah. She was really quite beautiful yeah. actually. So I was like the token fashion person, which Great. was good. But that was like still to this day. I'm like, how did that happen? And I had no money at the time. I borrowed all this jewelry from Kosminski, and they handed it over to me. And they were like, I was going. All these people had flown down to take um, do a shoot with me at in the royal rooms at Windsor. And um, the woman handed me over this jewelry and she was like, how are you gonna get to the Windsor Hotel? And I said, oh, I was gonna walk. And she said, no, 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 you've got half a million worth of jewelry in there. So I used my last money that I had <laughs> to catch a cab up there. And it was hilarious, the contrast, like having been treated like this massive princess, but actually having no money at all. Yeah, there's been a lot of moments like that. But when I read about a lot of other designers who have had long careers, like your Vivian Westwood and your um, John, John Galliano and your um, Alexander McQueen, they've all um, lived off the smell of an oily rag. It seems to be part of the life of being a fashion designer. Yeah, and it's something that so many people, so many young fashion enthusiasts really even at one brief moment, I was even thinking, should I do this too? I love fashion. I, I know how to construct things. I'm a creative person. And I think the fantasy that's presented as being the life of the designer versus the reality are so vastly different. And you, you really need to be in it for the love of the game because it certainly isn't a lifestyle choice. I do think it's a young person's game. And I think at some point you have to tweak your business. You might set yourself up. And I think I, I did that. Like I... I ran with it, I had fun, I went to amazing parties, I dressed up, I met amazing people. Um, but it has a lifespan and you've got to choose whether you might become just a gene manufacturer or you might just become, who's a great example? Of someone um, who's taken a, um, a more ready to wear brand but then turned well, Alexander it into a McQueen, brand. I guess, 
they've turned burp. But then that's big. That's LVMH, isn't yeah. it? It's a different game. We don't have that game in Australia. Um, yeah. No, I wonder I in, in Australia. I mean, I can't even think of who. I can't even think of who's who's even existing in that space, let alone someone who's adapted, because so few people have been able to compete with the high street labels that, that are you know available overseas, and it's almost like the Australian the Australian. I was about to say film industry because I'm always talking about what's wrong with the Australian film industry. But the Australian fashion industry has experienced a couple of blows. So you can even notice, you know, first high street fashion and then online shopping and, you know, all these different things have been made it really challenging to exist in the space. When you think about the, or if you think about the idea of emerging today, would you oh god i know i would never want to merge today would you would you if you had given that what you love and the skills that you have would you be able to do what you do today i think i I would be i think i if i was a young me wanting to emerge today i would still have the spunk and balls to just do it anyway um i i don't think it would stop me and there are so many benefits too. Um, I do think today it's so overwhelming, especially with Instagram, when you see all these people who've got hundreds of thousands of followers. It's like, how am I ever going to be like that? But funnily enough, I've never been mad about pushing for for massive um, following with my social media. I like to be honest about it. And I've got, I've there's other designers who um, are in my would be seen as competitors basically and you know I've got 20,000 followers and they've got like 180,000 followers and they've been in business half the time I have but it's actually benefited me people like your niche you're less they want they want to be working with someone who is smaller and less mass and while we're getting all this Zara and everything's seen as mass there's a real for those who really want something unique and special they're actually really like the lower numbers they're like oh this is something that's you're popular Unique. enough that you're validated yeah. in the eyes of the public, but at the same yeah. time, you're yeah, you're not you're not offering something for everyone in the everyone in the country. And I do think um, one thing about fashion newcomers is people like something new. The whole idea of fashion is um, that it's new, a new look, a new thing. So, you know, there is there is hope. It's just there's no manufacturers left. You'd have to be offering something made by you or using You'd have to make it yourself mm. or bring together a small team. Um, and how many there would, are. How many do you work with now? There's, hold on, there's four of us now. Okay. Yeah. And at its largest, how many people did you work with? I had 15. Okay. Yeah. And I was running around like a crazy woman with no head. What's the, <laughs> what's the sweet spot? What would allow you to have, to do everything that you wanted to do, but not spend all your time with admin? Mm, probably about eight. Yeah, I think if I had about eight staff, I'd be less bogged down by emails. <laughs> um, but it's also about having good staff too. Like there's people who are just so much more effective than others. So you could possibly get... I mean, I've got a friend who um, has a business and there's only two and he makes his own um he makes wedding dresses too very different look he does um very he does very good job 
of that sexy bride. And, um, yeah, he seems to just get the work done. He's, he's amazingly fast at sewing. I'm not so good. I'm sit down like, oh, my back. Oh, I'm too big. <laughs> and so what's, do you know, with, with the work that I do, even though I'm trying to work with other people who can do the things that are more time consuming to allow me to focus on winning new business and yeah. doing all of the, what I have really fun doing, but ultimately uh, try and work out the best use of my time for the growing of my little company. Yet I still really love editing. And if I were to get lost mm. in a little you know, just pop in some music or a podcast and just do a visual edit to like a fashion piece or I have a really fun time doing that even though ultimately I should be outsourcing things like that for my team members. Is there some part of the process that you just love even though your time could be spent elsewhere? I love, um, I love taking photos. It's been a little bit tough with my hand <laughs> the last while and, um, and I, and God, the editing process of photos, wow, that's, the big bit, the day of taking photos is nothing compared to the editing, but it's really enjoyable when you get in the flow of editing. Definitely. Too. You can emerge from, an, I can emerge, from, for me it's editing, is video editing, but I can emerge from, you know, an eight hour slog, having been like, I don't even know where I've been for the past day, <laughs> but I've had a really great time. Yeah. And I almost feel rejuvenated. Yeah. Beading design too, when I do the beading design, that's just, it's like art, it's, there's no rules. Like when you design a dress, over the years, I've worked out the the um, ideal neck depth, the highest and lowest from the collarbone, either 13.5 for someone who's conservative or 15.5 if they're just a little bit more racy. That's my customer anyway. And you've got all your, you work out your rules exactly where the sleeve should be and all the proportions. And after a while, it becomes very formula how you cut a gown. But the beating, I can go crazy. I can make up my own own rules, and um, maybe even put some colour in there. Yeah. <laughs> is the beating something that is a unique point of difference for you as as a yes? And they're all my des- my own designs too. And if you look up close to my product, I mean, a lot of people don't get the chance to to look up close. If you do Instagram, you, I think I've got a hashtag called Gwendolyn Details, and. Um, you have to spell my name right, though. There's another Gwendolyn on Instagram, by the way. Another and she's Gwendolyn. quite sexy. <laughs> this, is the, this is the cool, uh, <laughs> cool Gwendolyn, not necessarily sexy. Um, but if you look it up close um, at my beading, you'll see that it's not the same bead used. There's lots of different textures. And you know, when you look at something from H&M, for instance, it will just be one sequin, the same sequin, all over. Whereas every single um, bead is considered, so it's quite textural and really interesting to look at close. Do you, is there some part of the, I, I feel like when I, as a creative person, am transcending just a job, when I am in the writing process, I can lose myself in that, and I feel like what I'm able to bring through is really original and unique, and I sometimes look back at work I've done and I'm like, those sentences couldn't have been written any better than that. I'm very happy with that. That's a day well, that's a good job well done. Is there some part of the process that you feel is, you know, transcendent and a bit magical and that you really delight in? Yeah, definitely. Well, the photography um, and definitely the designing too, especially, and when I'm pattern making, I often pattern make as I design. I, I love pattern making. I love working it out. 
speak talking. It's, it's an engineering mind, isn't it? Oh yeah, I always think of myself as the the the. Like I say, I said I wasn't fashion earlier, but I keep dropping the word fashion in. When I say the clothing nerd. Like I love working out how things are made and um, working out the proportions. And that sometimes I'm sitting watching someone and I like want to get rid of some excess fabric around their shoulder that's bothering me. But mind you, my clothes, my personal clothes, are often things that aren't quite right. Um, but you know, the pattern making, when you're actually um, pattern cutting a new design, it's really exciting for me. It's also, it also can be very tedious, like you might make something 10 times till you get it perfect. And that's what people don't realise, like when you're making something unique, um, it can take about 10 prototypes to get that final one right. Do you, do you make all of your own clothes? No, okay. no. I've occasionally seen in the couple of days that we were hanging out over the weekend, you wore some beautifully tailored things that I wondered whether they were your own design. So are you often, do you just have an eye for things that have good tailoring about them? Or do you take, do you buy things from other people and then just modify them so that they do fit really nicely? Often I do modify things and sometimes I'll buy things because they're beautifully made. Um, It's a bit of a mix. And I love vintage clothes. I wear a lot of vintage clothes. Um, Lots of, like, I love the fabrics in a lot of the vintage clothes. You don't, they don't have prints like that anymore um but what, what inspired your aesthetic you, you mentioned that there's it's got its heart in in a victorian space in a 20s space but do you have any recollection of you know were you an impressionable teen at a point at which a certain style came in that's forever being baked into your idea of what's beautiful well definitely in the 80s a lot of a lot of people don't actually know this designer which frustrates me but there was a designer called Romeo Gili in the 80s have you heard of him vaguely yeah um beautiful it's almost like these deluxe peasant princesses beautiful fabrications amazing color palettes um I found his work so inspiring when I was young um my works actually it's, his work kind of nods to that Ikea aesthetic. Um, and there was some other designers, Ur Ilalajan, that came up in my time. And his work was kind of on par, but not as decadent and um, refined. And yeah, that's probably one of the standouts. But I, I mean, I really love Terry Mugler and the way he cuts jackets and his total aesthetic isn't what I personally attune to, but as um, someone who admires fashion on so many different levels, I adore what he does mm-hmm. um, or did. And Alexander McQueen, I always have been so inspired by too. Vivian Westwood, I, I can't remember now. I know Alexander McQueen, oh, and Jean-Paul Gaultier, mm. definitely. He's a phenomenal designer. His ex his exhibition that they had at the NGV just blew my mind. I just felt so emotional going through there. It was a particularly well put together exhibition as well as the pieces in there. But I felt very lucky for having been able to see it because you just feel like it was a world-class exhibition and it was beautifully told, a beautiful story, really well told. When he was, well, he was really big when I was studying fashion and I, he wasn't so big in the 90s. He was really big in the 80s, but then there's a real comeback to him, I think. 
Um, That's the thing about all sorts of design, though. There's always like these. I mean, I was even just thinking there was a period about seven or eight years ago where. I was even thinking like no one was wearing Nikes, for example. Yeah. And I was thinking to myself, oh, like, well, Nikes still around, but no one actually wears Nikes because they're kind of really uncool, and people are currently picketing outside their places because of their labour laws, and you know they just seem to be an example of a brand that has hung back when they weren't in a boom period, but now they very much are, and every single person is. I think I'm wearing some right now. Like yeah. every single person is wearing Nike. They're doing them in a really interesting tech-focused way. They seem to be ubiquitous. Yeah. Similarly, every designer has their day, and then when then they don't just necessarily close when they're not, you know, the tone of the moment. But then they have to find a way to offer something for their regulars or their, yeah. you know, their enthusiasts. When the Great Gatsby came, like I was doing twenty styling before, but when the Great Gatsby came out, I found I got slammed. Like it was definitely good for business. So there's definitely trends and movies and. Um, Things that happen where that people were drawn to your aesthetic at that time because of the zeitgeist of of what's happening in the environment at the time. Do you see things coming? Do you sort of go when when trends emerge? You think, oh, that, I saw that coming a mile away. Not really anymore. I kind of don't care. I find it all a bit fickle. The trends, and I am also, I know how trends work. It's all about advertisers. It's all about the um, the magazine selling space and creating a trend, so people will buy mag- buy magazines, buy blogs, and things. It's not necessarily going to look great on you. Yellow doesn't suit everyone, you know. I don't really. I mean, the girl, the amount of girls I've seen in white pants who shouldn't wear white pants. Oh my god! <laughs> and there's, I think that's been a massive trend for the last couple of years hasn't it yeah yeah it, white pants with white sneakers yeah oh yeah no yes you might have read it in shop to drop but it looks shit on you <laughs> and you know that these people it's like witchery's trying to sell a white jean so they're throwing some money at shop to you drop to feature it and yes it's a game mm-hmm. and people get sucked up in it they should buy clothes that um that reflect their own personal style and um, make them feel great. What's a good way for someone to find their personal style? If someone was listening to this and they were thinking, well, I don't even know what my personal style is. Yeah, yeah. How do you begin that journey? Rainbow is really good. And then raiding your friends' clothes. Um, dress up parties. Oh, you mean too. Rainbow Serpent yeah, the yeah, music yeah. festival? That's a, very, yeah. that's a great way to trial it. Oh, it's a such look. a great way to try. No one's going to give you any shit if you try a look that fails too. Wear your white pants to Rainbow oh, Serpent. No, maybe not. <laughs> Please. <laughs> You'll get very grotty too. Um, but yeah, festivals are really good. I see a lot of people, they put down their garden, they get experimental with with trying different looks at festivals and then they might go oh that was fun maybe i'll put that in my everyday um yeah parties is it just a case of you know rolling the dice and trialing something that you think you've seen because i generally get all my inspiration from just observing people on the street and usually they're or you know or just people i see around about i don't feel like i have any i have a good sense of style but i have no original style i just copy things that i think 
I, that I'm obsessed with that I've seen other people do yeah. in my in my own way. And yeah. I'll just ape trends usually now with like cool art kids that I meet along the way who are probably 21 and who I think I'm like, oh my God, I die for what they're wearing. They're so cool. <laughs> but I, I feel like, you know, if, if I was, if someone asked me how to get there, like if, where, where to go to for style inspiration, I would just say, you know, just make a vision board, like get a bunch of magazines and rip things out or, you know, start making a... Well, Pinterest Pinterest, yeah, Pinterest's get a folder. Great. Actually, a my partner, he said, I want to do some new great looks. So we went into Pinterest and we started to save some little things. It's great once you save a few little pictures, then it goes, if you like this image, you might like this one. And it takes you on a little journey for things. Like Pinterest is really good. I've got some massive Pinterest boards for outfits to wear to Rainbow Serpent, but of course I have no time to make them. Um, For those of you who don't know, Rainbow Serpent is a five-day music festival in in late jam that is in the searing heat with, you know, 30,000 people. It's kind of like Australia's Burning Man. And five stages of electronic Mm. music. Mm. You can find your groove of music too. And then lots of little off-site parties, really good food. Yeah, very amazing. Have you ever vegan had those eating? veggie plates, veggie-licious? I, 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 oh. I live on them. Oh, so Because good. it's the, uh, generally, I've got a couple of friends who work for them, so generally I'll pop by oh, and get a little jelly. bit of a plate on the, yeah. on the sly. <laughs> um, well, I, I want to wrap up by asking about your, uh, you know, where you are now and where you... Th- what the, this is, I mean, we're at, you and I are both at an exciting crossroads, yeah. having just come off the back of three very indulgent days to learn about ourselves and think about where we'd like to be in the next chapter. What are you looking forward to for the next year for you personally and creatively and as far as the business goes? Personally, a lot of it's personal. It's about nurturing myself at the moment. I feel like I can only be my best self for my business if I look after myself. In some ways, I've thought like my business is 21 in July and it's like it's an adult and it's my child and I haven't had children so you know maybe it's leaving home and I'm chilling out a little bit um I have been in this kind of space for the last little while just trying to work out what's next and it is a very competitive environment but I think feel for the business it's about being more and more a pure voice of what I do trying to just go more and more into myself, um, maybe even making it smaller. It's and not the way specific. people, yeah. Mm. I just, there's not really, there's so many people doing big things and it's not sustainable as a small business to try and be too big if your product isn't doesn't lend itself to being big. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, and it, you know, like, um, on our best year, we sell 170 dresses a year. That's not many. When you think about manufacturing quantities, like um, I know uh, some of my friends who work for big corporations, they'll do 300 to 500 units of each style. So this is like 170 dresses across many styles. So it's a very different game and you have to be realistic about your business. And just because it's big doesn't mean that you're making money or happy I found as my business has got smaller, I've actually been able to enjoy it and take a breath and connect with my customers, connect with myself. My goodness, sometimes I was just running around and then just falling over when I got home. So it's about just fine-tuning where I'm going next. But I, I, I have so many other creative things that I can offer too. 
So I don't know whether it's all going to be just in the space of, of clothing. Um, we'll see. It's still this weekend was part of guiding me there. And yeah, the clearest thing was nurturing myself because it's been a bit of burnout going this hard for so long. Would you have told yourself if you could have stepped back to five years ago or whenever you did sort of... So you described to me that you were, you know, your hand was giving you pain. Was that arthritis or...? Oh, actually, I had arthritis in my feet, but my mm-hmm. hand, hand's an injury. Oh, OK. Yeah. And I then mean, there's my disc bulge. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I couldn't sit for a while. Could yeah. You, could you... Could, would that... If you... Or to ensure that you are taking care of yourself physically for the next chapter because the thing is you're, you're a young person you should also feel like you're equipping yourself with a lifestyle to be as healthy and strong for, to support your creativity yeah yeah um do you think that you would do it differently for the next chapter in terms of what, what does that look like how you how your physical workspace looks or the amount of hours that you work or how you support yourself with nutrition like what what has to change to make sure that you're at 56 that you're feeling really energized and strong I think I think I still don't quite have the answer but definitely um, definitely probably less sitting although I don't do heaps of sitting during the day a lot of people think I do um, more time in in nature mm. would be a big one for me I try and create nature in my environments. Like in my work environment, there's plants everywhere, and at home, there's plants everywhere. But it really grounds me. Um, yeah, one of my goals with my partner is to to um, acquire a home in the hills too. So we've got that balance. But I'd like to I'd like to learn not to be such a workaholic. Even though it drives you, it also can kill you. So trying to I've been working on that for quite a while. It's, it's a hard tricky because one. when the thing that you love to do is the thing that you do. Yeah. It's, it, actually, this is a wonderful thing to discuss, or for it to come up, because I'm all, this whole podcast is all about doing what you love. Yeah. It's like, it's quit your day job. It's about taking the thing that you love to do and doing it for a living. Yeah. And you're lucky enough to have only ever done that. You've never had to work a job to support a passion. You've oh, been I able, have. Right, yeah. okay. So you've done, when I, you've yeah, done when it. Yeah, when I first started, I for f- the first four years, I was doing other things while I was building oh, well that, my that, business. That's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't happen straight away, don't worry. Well, uh, and I had, the do- I had the doll with the... Um, the niece Niece project. scheme, yeah, yeah, for that first year. Um, you know, I lived mm. at my sister's house. Uh, <laughs> I lived in some pretty dodgy houses in Fitzroy, but there were some really cool people. Like, I lived with Ricky... Have you heard of Ricky Swallow? He's an amazing artist. Yeah. Yeah, I lived with him. He's born on the same day as me, actually. Yeah, right. He won. He was like the most collectible artist for two or three years in a row. So being around other creative people like that was really inspiring. And my first studio was only twenty five dollars a week. So good. I know, crazy. And that was with a whole lot of artists and um, designers too. So it's always around other people. But you don't have those spaces like that anymore. Well, certainly not in Fitzroy. No. Well, I was going to say that you know, the, I'm interested about the idea of planting the seed with people who are listening to this that yeah. it's not just about I think doing the thing you love is part of the challenge for designing your lifestyle but then supporting it with the infrastructure to be able to then work hard but not burn out to be able to give yeah. yourself support with it's hard I almost feel like you 
the only way that you really get something off the ground is to kind of burn yourself out. Most of the people I know who've been very successful have, I'm not saying it's right, but you kind of need that really insane passion to get it there and to drive you. Um, This is planting an interesting seed for me because I want to know, you know, I want to be successful and I want to give everything to the thing I love to do. But I don't want to do it at the sake of my health and I don't want to turn yeah. around, you know, in my 40s and 50s and have compromised. You know, like the, I think it's really important to be able to invest energy and also but then to be nourished by the same investment. And I think just as it's really important to deliver the work that you're promising, give, you know, great work to your clients. and yeah. But also, you, especially when what you and I do involves our bodies so much. And this is an issue too, like you notice people like Alexander McQueen committed suicide, um, like people like John Galliano, had, uh, had a, had addict. A, had a, yeah, had a breakdown. Um, and there's a lot of fashion designers that I know of who've got, who've got severe depression. Another one, I can't remember her name, in, in, um, based in Perth and she committed suicide too. So it is, it is an issue where if you drive yourself to the ground, you can also have, it can bring on other problems one of the things um i was going to say was was really interesting with our weekend adventure um when i was going through my strengths and values with one of the other people in the group he wasn't doing what he loved and he was going on about he was ticking how much he thought about his hobbies and recreation most of the time and all i i just kept on ticking work 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 and i felt a bit jealous that he was ticking hobbies and recreation but then later on I was like I didn't need to tick that because I get that out of my work um, I think so too yeah. I think that, that's that is actually an efficiency you can have when the thing that you when the thing that you love to do or the thing that you do is what you love to do it it merges hobbies and and you can income. surround yourself around people that are like-minded or therefore it um, ticks the social box exactly mm. yeah I mean I like to think that there is a version of nailing it that that exists that allows you to do that looks similar to what you know we're doing but then also you know having that focus on how much you're sleeping how much what your nutrition is like the the exercise you're doing because i kind of feel like what we what being a creative person who's just really running the marathon of life needs to be considered more like you're an athlete yeah, and you need a supporter. It's true. With Actually, one of um, this photographer I saw at a party once, and I think I was having a, a moment where I was like, oh, it's all too much. And I was leaning, I remember I was on the floor leaning against the wall and chatting to him about um, the t- that particular moment. And he goes, you know, being a creative is just like being an athlete. You have to cut through the pain threshold. But I also think that those that people that you've mentioned that have been self-destructing in a way have definitely nailed, managed to cut through the pain threshold. But I think it's also the, yeah. the athlete analogy is most beneficial in terms of going, I can't undervalue the support I need to give to my body so that mm. that vessel is as equipped for the challenges because my mind's always going to override it. But I need to make sure that I'm actually recognizing that. And, you know, I, I mean, I spent my 20s going out every set every like two nights a week pretty much like i there was like you know if this conversation had happened you know seven or eight years ago it wouldn't have happened (laughs) because i'd still be at revolver right now yeah so i reckon that 
the antidote sometimes to being a very creative. Honky tonks. Yeah, totally. Oh, I love honky tonks. Me too. And then third class. But, you know, being a, <laughs> being, a, being a creative person, sometimes you think, well, I'm just going to blow off some steam by, you know, getting really wasted this weekend and just, you know, dancing away my troubles. But ultimately, exerting yourself mentally and physically throughout the week sometimes needs to then be countered with adequate rest, nutrition, yeah, yeah. you yeah. know, and exercise to make sure that your machine is strong and, you know, all that sort of thing. I think that, that maybe that's something that I hope is more understood for this generation and for the next, yeah. which is actually like, I want to have my cake and eat it too. I want to be able to do the fullness of my myself creatively or mentally, but actually hopefully feel strong and supported while also I do it. Also working smarter, not harder. There's been some some good wisdom that's been sent to me but I definitely haven't done that all the time I've been I've always incorporated Chinese um, therapy into my life pretty much see get Chinese therapy every week or every second week and massage as well um, and little things like baths and mm. there's lots of thing, little things you can do tools. yeah but it can be especially when you're setting up a business it can be a bit expensive to to be able to do all those things but mm. they've they've really seen me through i think that's what has meant that i haven't been suicidal or <laughs> and i sleep really well mm. too but coffee was definitely one of my big things that that's, kept me going it's your thing next, too that's my next thing well i haven't that's got too so many vices yummy. i've never drank but i've never been a drinker oh, you've never drunk i was in I, I have a glass of red wine with food but i can't i I'm kind of mildly allergic, so it kind of keeps me from yeah. really going there with alcohol, which is great because it's expensive and toxic. Yeah. But the well, look, I, I I'd love to find out. I always love to ask people if I were to check in with you in a year's time. Like, what is a a personal goal that you would love to have nailed in between now and then? Oh, um. Well, one of the personal goals was to acquire a home in the hills with my partner. And definitely to just reduce my pain in my body, that would be, if if I ticked those two goals, I'd be happy. Um, addressing the, the pains in my body is something that will also give, empower me to be able to achieve other things too. So it's very important. Yeah. Yeah. They're, not, they're not big material. Oh, the, oh, the house in the hills is yeah. kind of materialistic, but it's... But I feel like they're both... They both seem to be a beautiful counter to the hard the work that you are doing. Yeah. And also they'd, they'd be very supportive of that. Yeah. Mm. Um, thank you so much for having a chat. Oh, my pleasure. It's been so lovely to get to know you. Yeah, really <laughs> nice. Well, yeah, I can't wait to see where we go in the next year. Yeah, me too.